We'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week I opened, uh, excuse me, we opened God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're noticing some things, some implications of our doctrine of the church, of our doctrine of ecclesiology as, as we know it. I want to extend that a little further in a passage that Paul picks up on later in chapter 3 based on what he said last week in chapter 1. Two simple verses today, and as we do so, I want to talk to you about living at God's address. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, follow along as I read the first, excuse me, the uh, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We live in a world where we can use the global positioning system. The global positioning system is called shorthand what? GPS, exactly. A GPS device is a little instrument that uses the global positioning system to determine the ground position of the object, of the instrument itself. I don't know if any of you remember, they used to be, and it's hard to say this to the generation that has smartphones, GPS units used to be very expensive. You had to have a, 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 a subscription to have access, and you also had to have basically permission from the military to use these satellites. Now, GPS comes standard on even the most inexpensive phones. I love the benefits of a GPS. I love them on my phone. I love a handheld unit that I have that's a GPS. You can literally be in the middle of nowhere with no signal from any cell and that satellite can ping off your device and that device can ping off the satellite and it can put, show you where you are within a few feet The marvel that you can type in any address in your smartphone and give, be given a point-by-point, turn-by-turn guidance system is amazing. Now, I'm not going to say how sometimes my GPS seems to have been possessed by another country or something and it takes me to places that, that, uh, that don't exist. But by and large, it is a, it is a pretty secure technology. I, I'm constantly amazed by that. In fact, uh, I left it down there. Kim, could you hand me my phone? I, I don't, this is a visual aid I could have used without it. But the fact that satellites can find this little few-inch device almost anywhere in the world, it's astounding. And the fact that I can type your address in this phone and it will take me exactly to where you live is also amazing. Now, what would you say, please don't throw me out before I finish this, okay? What would you say if I told you that you could put into your GPS on your phone, 
in your map application God's address and you would be directed to a very specific location. Some of you have, I can see your eyebrows, that's all I can see. And you're going, what? Do you believe God has a physical address? Now, before you think I am crazy, I want to make an astonishing suggestion. God has an address, a physical address. And I happen to know it. Yes, I know God's omnipresent. Yes, I know he is everywhere all the time, at the same time, all the time. However, what would you think if I told you I could take you to the place where God lives and God dwells? And if you believe me, you'd probably say, I want to test that. I want to put that in my phone and see where it will take me. Well, I don't know if you put it in your phone, but you found it this morning sitting here. 7820 Mission Road is God's address. Now, he has several more addresses around the world, but that is his address. And I want to prove that to you by the passage we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You might be surprised that 7820 Mission Road is indeed God's address, but that's exactly, and I mean exactly the point that Paul is making here to the church at Corinth. This is a familiar text to many. It tells us that we are the temples, more specifically, we are a temple, a dwelling place of God, of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? In what sense is this church and are we a temple of God? In order to understand this, you have to actually go back to the beginning of the chapter to get a running start. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to value their salvation, the preciousness of of the reality of Christ's blood-bought church. He wants them to value that, value their leadership, value their fellowship. The most practical application of this was to distinguish the faithful leaders from the false teachers. Now, if you've been around the Bible very long, if you've studied the New Testament at all, you understand that Corinth was, as we said last week, plagued by two primary issues, contamination and confusion. They were contaminated by the world. They were confused about doctrine. And those went hand in glove. They, the, the, the confusion that they had theologically led them to live wrong and to make wrong moral decisions. Their wrong moral decisions caused them to cloud and, and uh, doubt their own theology. They worked back and forth. So Paul writes this letter to correct their misunderstandings. He writes this letter to to cure their contamination, to call them to holiness. He also shows in this letter and in 2 Corinthians, there's a massive difference between true and false teachers. Pastors who shepherd the flock and I don't mean just the senior pastor, I'm talking about elders and leaders and pastors who lead people astray to themselves. Even then, the Corinthians were to understand that the ultimate source of spiritual health, the ultimate source of spiritual sustenance, the ultimate shepherd is God himself and comes from his throne. And we saw that last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 
10 to 17. Remember, people said, I, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a Peter. I'm, I'm Cephas. I'm, he's my guy. And then some people said, well, I don't believe in any human leadership. I'm a Christ guy. And, and we looked at that in great detail last week. He picks up on that same idea now here in chapter 3. Look back at verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? He answers, servants through whom, not about whom or for whom, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. He says, sure, we have leaders in the church. Sure, I led you, so did Apollos, so did Peter or Cephas. But ultimately, that's, we're just instruments. We're, we're just uh, uh, tools that God is using. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who causes the growth. Verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Leaders work in cooperation with God in his church. You are God's field. Then he says, you are God's building. He uses two illustrations at the end of verse 9, a field and a building. You, church, he's saying at Corinth, you are a community of believers that, that God tends like a garden. He waters, he, he plants, he, he fertilizes just as you would a garden. He weeds, he cares for it, he mows. But also, that's not the only metaphor he uses. He says, you are God's building. Now, that illustration of building doesn't hang in the air very long before he talks about exactly what he means. And that is not just any building. It's a temple, a temple of God. Both of these illustrations represent the church which is why verses 10 to 15 deals with the judgment and responsibility of spiritual leaders. That's not, by the way, the judgment seat of Christ, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That's for another study. So as Paul concludes his argument about protection of the church, he adds, or he, he actually extends the metaphor of the building that he's talking about, a, a temple. This is fascinating for us who know our Bibles. The temple is the central locale in the Old Testament. It extends the, the understanding of our basic understanding of God's dwelling in the, in the Old Testament to our new revelation of God's dwelling in the New Testament. And we'll come back and see more about that in just a moment. In fact, these two verses contain both encouragement and warning for how to be a more faithful church member. And as he finishes his argument concerning how precious the church is here in chapter 3, I think we can look together and discover three ways to be a faithful church member. Just from these two simple verses. I told you we're in between the Gospel of Mark and 
We're gonna start Ephesians around the first of the year. And so these are some weeks that we can just devote to things that are more pressing for us. And I think this is a great place for us just to park based on last week's discussion from 1 Corinthians 1. Paul finishes that same idea here in chapter three. Concentrating on faithfulness. Three ways to be a faithful church member. The first is in verse 16. Know where God dwells. And that's the church. Know where God dwells. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That word dwells is tabernacles, lives in you. There's the address. Paul begins with one of the most pointed teaching devices in all of his epistles. He uses it nine times in this book by asking the rhetorical question, do you not know? Don't you know? I think he's nine other times, ten total times he uses it in this this epistle. Uh, We'll pick up in a few minutes. He also says in chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He'll pick up on that same metaphor in a little bit different way. Don't miss the subtlety here of Paul. The question is a hand slap. It's a rebuke. It's a confrontation. It's a bony finger on the sternum. He is not implying that his subject matter is something the Corinthians did not know about. He's not saying, hey, did did you not know something? He's saying, don't you remember? Don't you know? It's a rebuke. He's in effect saying that this is something the readers should have known about, should have acted upon, but we're not acting on that knowledge. What knowledge? That they were a temple of God. What does this mean? You are a temple of God. I can stand here this morning on the authority of God's word and through the lips of Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and look at you and say, don't you know that you, Mission Road Bible Church, are a temple of God? Now, to understand some of Paul's rebuke and nuances of it, I want to take a quick tour of some Old Testament passages that highlight the reality of the temple's primary purpose, which was to be the place where God chose to localize his presence. Say that carefully. He chose to localize his presence. That didn't mean that he wasn't everywhere, omniscient, omnipresent at the same time, but he did choose by his grace and by his kindness to localize his presence in the temple in the Old Testament so that that could be a focal point for the worship. Listen to some of these. Just, we're gonna go too fast. Just listen to this. Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct, God speaking, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Was God confused about his omnipresence? Not at all. He was saying, let's locate a place where they will know that's specifically where I will meet with them and they with me. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God in the context of the tabernacle. 
Leviticus 26, 11. Moreover, I will make my dwelling place among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, though I had removed them far away from the nations and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they'd gone. It's interesting because he, he chose the location of the Temple Mount to be his, his locale for his presence. But he says, when you were in exile, I was actually, it says sanctuary, I was a temple to you there. I was. Ezekiel 37. I will make, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with the people. I will place them and multiply them and set my temple, my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. In other words, that's the metaphor for the now and the not yet of dwelling with God, the temple, the sanctuary. And then Psalm 114, verse two, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. And the point of of these passages is that God uses the sanctuary, which is another word for the tabernacle and temple, He uses that dwelling place on uh, Mount Moriah, on the Temple Mount in Israel that was was built by Solomon. He uses that as the, the place to say, that's where I will meet with you and you will meet with me. That's the place where you dwell together before me and with me. The temple was indeed God's dwelling place. Let me say again, that does not mean he did not dwell throughout the earth. But in such kindness, he took his presence from being almost imperceptible and made it very localized where the people could go to meet with him. Consequently, the Lord warned those who would profane or destroy his temple that they would face serious judgment. That's why the desecration of the temple was called the abomination of desolation. He protected the holiness of his temple with the utmost judgment. Now, if you spend any time in chapter three of 1 Corinthians and study these verses, you're probably wondering why the point And this outline says the church instead of our physical bodies because we often talk about we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we we mean our bodies, right? And so that's kind of the first reflex that that's what Paul is talking about. And and he does talk about that in chapter six. But this is chapter three. The word you, you are a temple of God is a plural, I could say, I, I care about you. And that could mean one of you. I could say, I care about you, and that could mean all of you. That Greek has, uh, word has that, that, um, that range. Now, that could be confusing unless you're from the South. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And if you're using the second person plural pronoun, you would not say you. I wouldn't say, I care about you. I would say, I care about y'all. Paul was a pretty good southerner because he used y'all a lot. He is using the y'all here. 
If you had used the y'all, you would understand that. The text literally reads, Do y'all not know that y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? It's plural. He'll talk about the singular application in chapter 6, but not here. He's talking about the gathering of church. That's a temple of God. He's speaking to the church about the church. If he were speaking to individual believers and their physical bodies, he would have used different language and different tenses, different uh, 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 grammar here, rather, of the, the singular and the plural. Now, in both context and grammar, he's clearly speaking to the corporate dimension of the church, how the Spirit of God dwells in the church gathered now, footnote, I said, you know, God's address is 7820 Mission Road, and it is when you're here. And when you're not, it's an empty shell of a building. Gordon Fee, one of the most trusted commentators of our day, writes, the passage has endured, this passage has endured a long history of an unfortunate interpretation in the church because the imagery of the temple is reapplied in chapter 6, verses 19 to 29 to the individual Christian who is going to prostitutes. And uh, many have read that usage back into this passage as though it were a warning to individual Christians as to how they are to treat their bodies or to live out their Christian lives. Both the context and the grammar disallow such interpretations even by extended application. This is all the more unfortunate because this is one of the few texts in the New Testament where we are exposed both to an understanding of the nature of the local church, God's temple indwelt by a spirit, and where the warning of verse 17 makes it clear how important the church, local church, is to God himself, end quote. I think he's right. We'll come back to chapter six in just a few minutes. I don't think that we make enough of the fact that the the gathered church is the corporate dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Since in verse five, since verse five rather, Paul has been attempting to correct the Corinthians' wrong view of the church and wrong view of leadership, by the way, too, by redirecting their attention from the teachers themselves to God planting, watering, God causes the growth. The apostle has told us that spiritual leaders can be understood as building a building and that building is, look at the text, a temple of God. And it's not a physical building, it's not brick and mortar, it's you, it's, it's us. You're a temple of God. What do you think the Corinthians thought about when they heard this? Well, last year, Kim and I were able to visit Corinth and we saw the ruins of several temples all over that place. One way up on the mountain, several in the city. They were used to seeing temples and the temples, in their mind, the temple at Jerusalem shared this in common with the temples, the pagan temples, which was that was the place you met with God. It was God's dwelling place, localized, And it symbolized the character and nature of God himself. The role of the temple in Jewish society was was their central concept of God, worship, and identity happened there. And when it was pondered, several things would come to mind in the Jewish thinking. It's where God dwelt. 
It's where God was. It's where you went to see God. Even when the temple was dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses uh, 10 and 11, Solomon tells us that a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. A place of communion. It represented the place where communication with and about God would take place. It was a place of extreme holiness. Because the temple representing the dwell, represented the dwelling place of God. It was in their minds, the holiest place on earth. It's also a place of fellowship. Not only was God's presence sought in the temple, but the enjoyment of others who loved God was enjoyed as well. There was so much imagery around the temple. Read the Psalms of Ascent. David and and other worshipers longed to go to the temple to be with God and to be with other worshipers. And again, even the pagans had a view of the temple. They knew it to be the place where you would go to deal with God or their gods. So, put all that together. When Paul tells the Corinthian believers that they are a temple of God, they would understand this statement as associated with the church, not the individual believer. When we say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we almost always default to 1 Corinthians 6 and we think of our, our bodies and the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. And that's true and we'll get there. That would have been the outlier understanding for Paul's audience. The typical understanding would be a temple is a place where people dwell and you meet with God. So what are the implications of the church being a temple of God? Well, it's to be a place for the communication of and about God, though not exclusively. That's why we come every week and we, we open this ancient book and we talk about what it meant then, what it means now, and why it matters. It's where God communicates with us. It's also where we communicate with God. We, we pray together. We, we sense the evidences of grace in one another. The church is to be treasured then because he, the great God, the Holy Spirit himself, indwells our assembling in a way that is different than just when we're sitting alone with our Bibles in the Lord. It's supposed to be precious, to be honored with commitment and participation, loved by her members the church is to be protected from those who would come against it. This is a great point to ask us all the question that Paul is asking the Corinthians. Do you know, do you remember, do you know, don't you know that the assembling of the church, the body of Christ, is a temple of God? Do you take church seriously? Prioritize its proper place in your life? Or is it just another calendar event, a weekend appointment, something that we, we look at as just another scheduling event? Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And look at this. And the Spirit of God dwells in y'all, in you. Listen, friends. 
One of the reasons I want so badly to get our whole church back together in one service is to experience that at an even deeper and richer dimension. Yes, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna get there. But when you bring people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God together, it should bring us closer together in a way that is unique, special, that is divine, supernatural, that the world cannot and will not understand. The Spirit of God dwells in this assembly. Kind of changes your focus when you're, when you're driving to church when you're walking in the church. I think this passage should lift our gaze from just what we see horizontally, which is wonderful, to add to that what we, what we get from the Lord by thinking and being aware of the fact that he is uniquely dwelling with our assemblies in ways that he doesn't when we're by ourselves. And it's a treasure. It's a precious, sweet gift. Know where God dwells, the church. Yes, he dwells everywhere. But he dwells specially when the church gathers. Secondly, beware who God destroys. Beware who God destroys. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this. And that's unfaithful leaders. Unfaithful leaders. If any man, verse 17, destroys that building, the temple of God that he just described, God will destroy him. Notice Paul repeats the words, if anyone. Look back at verse 12. Now, if anyone or any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. I know that we so badly want to say that that's every believer, but in the context, it's spiritual leaders. Sure, we're all going to face a judgment. Sure, we're all going to face a, the judgment seat of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians and that's another text. This is primarily talking about leaders and the, the, the key phrase there is, if any man builds, if anyone builds. Same phrase is here in verse 17. If anyone destroys. See the contrast? If anyone builds, it's going to be evident. If anyone destroys. This was especially a problem in the Corinthian church. Second Corinthians goes into great detail about this. There were men who were coming, basically promoting themselves, preaching themselves, trying to get an audience after themselves, not only were they trying to take the glory from God himself, they were actually saying things about Paul. He can't teach, he's not a good speaker, he's ugly. So in verse 17, now he changes from that positive in verse 12, if any man builds, to the negative, if any man destroys. How would a leader... And by that, I mean a pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, a care group leader, a discipler, a Bible study leader. How in the world would any man destroy the temple of God, destroy the church? Well, there's several ways. By false 
teaching and false doctrine. False teaching and false doctrine. There was a, a man who, uh, uh, this was many years ago, many years ago, I, I had not been here long, uh, a man who was coming to our church, was wanting to join our church, and there were some um, things on his membership application that made us alarmed. And so some men met with him, and it was more alarming, and so he ended up meeting with Bob Taylor and, and myself. And after a, a few questions, we could tell that he was not just a little off, he was completely errant in his theology. Saying some parts of the Bible were not inspired. Other parts were more inspired than others. You should only sit and listen to certain men in the Bible and not listen to others in the Bible. And the more we began to ask questions and press, at the end of that meeting, and uh, he was wanting to get involved in care group, I mean, he wanted to come full tilt. We saw what kind of influence we would be, and we said, we, we can't let you join the church. In fact, you can meet privately with us, and we could talk about these, but, but until you do so, we don't even want you coming to church. Well, that wasn't very received by him, so he left. We actually walked him out of this building and asked him, don't come back ever, if, as long as you believe that. It's very serious to bring doctrinal infidelities into Christ's body. Imagine if I took one of your children and, and took them out to Starbucks and began telling them that you know, uh, what, what you say is not true and you're living a double life and, and, and mom is this and dad is that and let me tell you about the brothers. Would that not bring something? That's, that's Paul's emotion here. Those who would destroy the temple, the body of Christ. You can also uh, destroy it by being divisive, by just backbiting and talking about people and talking about other people and causing divisions in the church, by promoting your own philosophy, your own, your own opinions, and the point here is that God takes seriously those who mess with his wife, his bride. You may not be a teacher or a preacher, but there's still an application for all of us not to damage the church with gossip, lying, slander, defrauding, and every other sin that's imaginable. And the sentence for such is horrific. Look back at the text. He will be destroyed. He will be destroyed. That means punished. If a misguided believer falls into this trap, they will receive a certain set of consequences. But if he's an unbeliever, hell is the consequence. Beware of those who teach falsely and beware that you are not divisive. One commentator says this, what is clear in verse 17 is that the punishment fits the crime. If anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy that person. Why? Because the church is inestimably valuable to Christ. How valuable? Valuable enough to die for. It's his wife, it's his bride. And he takes seriously any that might come against her. Beware who God destroys. Be discerning. Watch out for leaders and whether they are living right, teaching right, and believing right. And thirdly, and this is where we all come to have a ministry with each other, recognize what God demands. Corresponding holiness. 
Recognize what God demands, which is corresponding holiness. Look at the end of verse 17. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Namely, what is that? Holy. Holy is what you are. Now, holiness has an incredible range of meaning in, uh, in God's word. It means two primary categories. Something that's separated and something that's morally above reproach. Let's take the first, uh, separated first. Sanctified just means to take something and set it aside. The temple of God is to be set aside from the world, from others, from unbelievers. It's also to be morally above reproach. It's to be imitating of God's moral perfections and his holiness. So the temple is supposed to be holy and that is what y'all are. You are holy. You know, I don't... I'm not encouraged by the lack of preaching in our generation on, on holiness, on avoiding worldliness. It can easily lapse into a legalism and none of us want to go there. But where is God's holiness anymore in our deciding? What we do, what we watch, what we say, who we're with, how we act. There's an illustration of this that we've looked at many times in our church. In Leviticus chapter 10, this is Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. It's their first day on the job. In chapter 9, God had demonstrated his power in that fire had come from the holy place and consumed in, in the outer course, in, in, the, in the, uh, the tabernacle there, had consumed the sacrifice. Could have been a lightning flash. It was divine fire. Next verse. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, you could say again, and consumed not the sacrifice, but consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, you know, this is a scene that I've just rolled around in my mind many times. Aaron just watched his two sons, literally feet from him, be incinerated. What is Aaron, Moses rather, going to say to Aaron? This is what he says. Moses spoke to Aaron and said, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. That's primarily talking about spiritual leaders. And before all people, I will be honored, how? As holy. So Aaron therefore kept silent. The church is holy because she has been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus and we are to act in corresponding holiness, hating sin, running from it, pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ. 
The reason the false teachers will be judged so severely is because the church is holy to God and they in some way, by some means, lead her away from such holiness. Now, when it comes to us acting and living in holiness, corporately, now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a few pages. Because the corporate dwelling of the holiness of God and the people of God is the summation of the individual commitments that we all have to Christ in our personal, individual holiness. Paul's talking and he says, all things are lawful for me, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He picks this back up in chapter 8, 9, and 10 by, by Christian liberties. Food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That's you and me. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know? There's the question again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, that's the individual, not the corporate. This is, in, this is singular. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. What he's saying is what you do with and in your body has significance before the Lord because this flesh is the place where we express the holiness or the sinfulness of our souls. The two shall become one flesh, he says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. He's talking about committing spiritual adultery by committing physical adultery. It's obvious that if you're unfaithful with a temple prostitute or a prostitute in that culture, you're being unfaithful to your wife. Paul goes one step beyond this. He says, it's not just your spouse. You're being unfaithful to God himself. Verse 18, flee immorality. You want a footnote for that? Be holy. Flee immorality for every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body here it is again. Do you not know, you should know this, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from whom you have from God, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. What do you mean, Paul? Explain that to me. I'm not my own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Don't make too much out of, you know, flesh because you can, you can sin in your mind, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, just as easy as you can sin with your body. It's all who you are. What he's simply saying is the Holy Spirit dwells in, with, and by you, and when you sin, you're dragging God's presence into that very sin with you. When's the last conversation you had with someone who's close to you about the pursuit of holiness? Even saying that phrase, you know, um, that uh, book by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness, just a classic book for a good reason. That Christians are to be and pursue greater 
levels of holiness, higher levels of morality in mind and in body. Now, I want you to imagine something with me for a second. Imagine a world where sexual immorality is promoted, where sexual immorality is available and accessible, a world where adultery is common, prostitution legal, drunkenness normal, divorce normal, theft a constant threat, a world in which most children rebel against their parents, fornication and incest are rampant, God is openly hated, the justice system rarely works for the innocent, and Christianity is illegal. Imagine a world where homosexuality is out of the closet, it's publicly recognized, there's gay marriage, it enjoys promotion and protection by the government. And I would tell you, that's not an imaginary world and that's not a future United States. That's Corinth. That's the day in which Jesus lived. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Jesus lived in this world and the gospel was cradled in this kind of society. That's why Solomon could say in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. Sure, we live in a similar world. And in this world, God calls us to be holy individually. He God, God calls us to be holy corporately. God causes and desires that when we get together, we are moving each other toward him and toward holiness and away from sin. Our Lord desires for the church to be a gathering of his people and where we gather, he is present and holiness prevails. Man, do you love the people in your church? And if you love coming to church, why do you love coming to church? I've told you several times the story and I want to finish with this. I, I, one of the most powerful images ever placed on my mind about the church and its preciousness was the uh, first time I went to uh, Russia in, in Siberia, in um, uh, Krasnoyarsk. It was uh, 25 below zero that day, uh, which was not a cold day for them, by the way. Um, and we, uh, we were getting up to go to church. I was one of, I think, seven speakers in church that day. The church service was about three hours. We got there early. And when we got there early, there was one or two cars in the parking lot. Not very many people there. And we got out of the car and we start walking in and I hear music. We were there about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half early. We open the back, we walk in, and the church is almost full of people singing before the service on their own with no leader. So I asked my translator, I said, was this choir practice? What, what is this? He said, no, this is, this is Sunday. i never forget that. This is Sunday. And the people get to be with each other and because of that, the three-hour church service is not enough for them, so they get together early to sing by themselves. 
we walked down the side, went up to the, the kind of the green room, the prayer room to get ready for the service. And I noticed right down here in the left front were a group of little old ladies. They had a kind of a perimeter of empty seats around them. And I, I asked, who, who are these ladies? And he said, those are all the widows of the, the men who were killed for the Christian faith under the Soviet Union. They have a very honored place in our church. You know, I taught that week, I came home, and that, 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 that image has both encouraged and haunted me. They loved being in the, the temple of God, the household of God, in the presence of others so much that they, would, they added their own extra service and singing. By the way, no instruments. Aaron, you would have loved the singing. It was throttling a cappella. One more thing. I asked him, why is the parking lot empty? He said, oh, most of these people don't have a car. And if they do, they wouldn't drive it with, with it this cold in case it broke down. So they walked to church. I said, how far? Some of them, eight miles. The church is precious to those to whom Jesus is precious. I think it's a good opportunity, this passage is for us to stop and remember and calculate. Do you not know that you're a temple of God? Let me pray and then we're gonna sing a closing song.